Twelve years ago, I was still fresh from my move to Los Angeles when I started a fashion and lifestyle blog featuring mostly menswear, surfing, and really just life in Southern California. One day while strolling down Abbott Kenny in Venice Beach, I came across a row of about five bikes on the sidewalk, each hosting the name Linus across the top tube in a timeless sans-serif font. But these weren't just any bikes. They weren't mountain bikes, nor were they road bikes requiring a kit of spandex. Interestingly enough, they weren't beach cruisers either. They were, and still are, simple, really well-designed city bikes. Predating the commuter craze of the last decade, Linus bikes were often sold as single-speed bikes with swoop-backed handlebars, which made the riding position more upright and comfortable, and they came in colors far more interesting than just black or white. To this day, I get complimented on mine, which I soon purchased after featuring Linus on my blog. When I would feature brands, I'd email a link to the post to those companies. So my first interaction with Linus's founder, Adam McDermott, actually took place over email in 2011. Funny enough, he and I'd never met until this interview. Adam was born in South Africa, though much of his childhood was spent in Malibu as apartheid provoked his mother to move them to California. Adam started Linus through motivations predicated on lifestyle changes and environmental impact, something certainly resonating even more so today. I stand by the notion that Linus makes the most comfortable bikes on the planet and also serve as an incredible value add given their price point, so I was excited to sit down with Adam. What I love most is this is really a story of someone wanting something that they couldn't find and they decided to just figure out how to get it done. I think a ton of entrepreneurs can absolutely identify with this mentality, with the motivation to keep pushing until the mission is complete. Today, Linus is carried in over 200 stores worldwide and is bolstered by quite a large assortment of bikes and accessories. This past Christmas, I actually bought my wife a Linus, which has been instrumental during this time of COVID-19 as we've been exploring much of San Diego as a way to switch up our exercise regimen. I guess I can't say enough about the bikes, really, so I'll leave it to Adam to share even more. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. Well, Adam, thanks so much for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for, thanks for talking to me. Where are you from originally? Uh, originally born in South Africa. Oh, wow. That's yeah. awesome. Um, I was there until I was five. And then uh, we came to we came to the states. We moved to LA. Oh wow, that's yeah. a drastic culture shock, I'd imagine. Uh, I mean, for a five year old, there's really no culture, so, yeah. you know. But it was it was just like uh, you know now there's summer is winter and winter is summer, or you know it's like it was. But um, were you it, from Cape Town or I was originally in Johannesburg. Oh Johannesburg, yeah. sure. Yeah, my, my mother and I came here uh, as I said when I was five, um, and. California, I guess, in a lot of ways, is, is similar to South Africa. Um, it's outdoorsy. It's like the weather. It's climate. It's um, it's also kind of like a sprawling city, Johannesburg. Okay. Kind of like LA. Like you know, there's people live in houses. It's um, a lot of yards and that kind of life. So uh, yeah, we had some friends here, and we came to LA, and then eventually we uh, we moved to Malibu. Oh wow. Um, after, uh, after a couple of years and, um, grew up like kind of at the end of Malibu, North, Northern Malibu, like by Zuma, Trancas, I don't know if you know the area very sure, well, but yeah. it's, but it's, it's in, in a way it's almost country, you know, compared to Los Angeles. It's, um, there's a lot of space between people or, you know, there's no real neighborhoods, things like that. So, um, 
that was, that was my early childhood. And then um, actually when I was 16, I went back to South Africa. I finished high school there in Cape Town. Um, that was kind of right at uh, independence. So Mandela was released from prison. And then shortly after they had elections. And um, the Was country- apartheid any reason why you came to L.A.? Um, again, I was, I was five, so totally unconscious. But like for your mom? But but for my mother, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And in South South Africa, um, so it was apartheid and it was totally cut off from the world. Uh, there were sanctions. Um, there was just, just access to like ideas, music, film, anything was really cut off because it was so remote. And then because of sanctions, it was a really isolated place. Um, she... She had friends in the States and it was an opportunity for her to leave and, and cool. come here. So, yeah. Nice. So what, um, well, you finished high school there. So like, what were you into as a kid? And, and even in Cape Town would say when you went back, yeah, um, what were like the activities you were enjoying? So like, so, you know, that was like sort of the, I guess, peak teen angst, you know? So like, like growing up in Malibu, clearly I was like, it was like, it was like surfing and, and playing in drainage ditches and you know what kids do just to you just you find stuff what kind of music were you into uh so by the time i had left it was like it was it was kind of that it was um it was like nwa and too short and it was like you know that was kind of a fascination for especially for kids who like yeah grow up like removed from the city you have this fascination with the city because it's like right there it's los angeles and then all this like all this like music and energy was coming out of it so i was like just fascinated by it sure you know it was actually kind of that at at that age where i was like starting to reject surf culture more and i was like i want to be a gangster interesting (laughs) you know i was just like as like anything that's anti-malibu yeah it was just like it was like it was cool it was interesting to me it was like um there was like so malibu then also Malibu is also an interesting place. I don't know if you spent much time there. So there's like, there's, there's sort of like celebrity Malibu and people that are connected to the entertainment industry. And then there's a lot of like old families who are from Malibu who were, were like hippies or were kind of, I guess, more working class, class families that were in construction or lifeguards, firemen. Um, so it's these kind of these two worlds that sometimes connect and sometimes very often are separate. Yeah. Um, but there's also there's a part of like Malibu, especially in surf culture back then, where it's like you only wear like a black wetsuit, you don't put any colors on your surfboard, you know, you, you know, you have very sort of like specific ideas about like what's progressive or what's not in terms of surfing. Like it was always like there was it was kind of a rejection of like anything that's like competitive or like right. if you're into like surfing in contests or. Um, surfing in sort of this more like progressive style so it was like there was a lot of like localism that was me like you know in 15 i guess um and i yeah and then around that time um my mom decided to move back you know for for a kid who's like you know you lived in the states and then going back to like a place like south africa was was really interesting it was like going from like a school with like three thousand kids to a school of like 400 kids Um, wearing a uniform, um, but in ways like it's it's more it was more rigid, you know, and like especially like how school is. But at the same time, because it was like smaller, looser, like you were a lot more free. Like like school in the states, um, 
you know, for lunch, like you would just go off and you go, you know, leave the campus and maybe you don't come back or like there was like, it was really like up to you what you're going to put into it there. Like they were like on you. Um, it was a much more demanding academic um, requirement there. But other than that, it was also there was like, there, like the drinking age was 18 and it wasn't enforced. So we were like 16 and we were going to bars or um, weirdly like you could like hitchhike there, you know, because they couldn't drive. You, know, you couldn't drive until you're 18 there. They had it kind of flipped. So. Right, right. Um, so we'd go out and then I'd hitchhike home like at night. And it was just like, it was like, it was really fun. It's like, it was, a, it, was a, it was a kind of a cool experience. And like I had an accent. So like, you know, people were interested in me. Girls were interested in me because oh, you know, right. I was like, I was like the American The American kid. Yeah, kid, yeah. Yeah. I had CDs. Right. Know? Yeah. yeah. What did your mom do for work? Uh, she was, she was a housewife, um, while we were in the States and then, um, eventually she started working in, uh, production. She was a, like a stylist and a makeup artist. Nice. So after high school, what did you do? Did you go to university? I went to film school. Okay. Where'd yeah. you go? I went to, uh, Emerson college in Boston. Oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Boston's yeah. a great time. Yeah. It was, it was, uh, it was, it was, it was great for me. Like I, um, to, I've never lived on like an East Coast city, and it's an old city, and um, you know, such a it's such a different America compared to like Southern California. Oh yeah, you know, very. Um, and yeah, and it's also like right in the city. It's not like on a like a, a campus that's removed from 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 the city experience. So yeah, I really liked it. I I loved Boston. So what drew you to film school? Were you looking to direct or write um, or both? I or? didn't really know. You know, I was like in South a so in South Africa. I mean, I there was always like kind of like film film conversation in my house. Like my my stepfather like loved loved movies, um, and we like just you know as like a family we would see movies and then like discuss it after. And we were always like kind of watching interesting movies. Um, and then when I was in South Africa, my mom dated a guy who made music for commercials. Oh. So a lot of his friends and buddies were like in the South African film industry. And um, I, when I was like finishing high school there and just looking for work, I, um, I got like some, you know, just like driving trucks and PA work and things yeah. like that or charging walkie talkies. And yeah, exactly. But I like, you know, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know. I just, I like, I like the people. I like the environment. Um, it's kind of like a sort of like a band of misfits and, you know, but they're doing kind of interesting work. You know, it's like, there's a lot of sort of at stake, you know, there's a, it's a big production of people and equipment and budgets and, but yet they're all like, kind of like clowns at the same time, you know? So it's, it wasn't like a, really a conversation about like, what do you want to do when you grow up? It was just right. like, you know? Um, I got into that school and I got a, like a scholarship. So I was like, oh, we'll give it a try. And I took it from there. And, I, and then I ended up working in the film industry for, for 10 years. I, I became um, a, a camera assistant, the first AC, which is like a focus puller. Um, that was like in the day when it was actual film, you know, celluloid film, not, not digital. And, um, and it was great. It was great. It was great for the time I was there and I, I met like some really amazing people and traveled and, um, it's, it's definitely, it's, it's a grueling work. It's grind. Yeah. Yeah. It's grueling Cause you know, you're, you're only making money when you're on set and that's was pretty much a 12 hour day. 
you never know like what your year is going to be, if it's going to be, you know, like what, how many, how many, how much work you're going to get, what you're going to make. It's really hard to plan. Yeah. You um, kind of become familiar with the unemployment scene. Yeah. I know like a lot of my friends here in LA that still work in the industry, quote unquote. Yeah. yeah. It's like, yeah, it's like three to six months a year they're on unemployment and yeah. they get hired back. And no, it's crazy. Yeah. I mean, you're, it's weird. And you go through like all the highs and lows of it, you know, like either you're working too much and that's like kind of destroying you or you're not working enough and that's like destroying you, you know, so. Different type of pressure. Yeah. Um, there's like sort of like emotional highs and lows. Um, and then now like having a company, even though it's like my own company, like I'm still kind of like locked into like company hours. So it was like, sure. It's a different, different experience. Yeah. Um, so did you start Linus right after 10 years of working in the business? Um, it was a little simultaneous. So I w- it was like 10 years of, of working in the industry and kind of like towards the end of that, that time. So I just realized that like it's not something I wanted to do for the rest of my life. It, feel, it feels really impermanent. You know, like you work a job, you put a ton of energy into it. And then at the end of it, there's like, sometimes there's a movie. If you work on movies, I was mostly working mostly in commercials. So it's like, it's something that truly doesn't exist. Was, you know? like was it, there any commercial that stands out in memory? Um, I mean, there was like, it's a, very often like the, the, the better job is not necessarily the content of what you're making, but like the paycheck, <laughs> the paycheck or the, the location, you know, or the people that you're with. Sure. Um, I, I got to work. Um, I mean, I got to work with like some really, some of them who are still my, my best friends, you know, so that, that was like the biggest thing from like that experience is the people that I've, that I've made remain close to. Um, so what was kind of the, did you work anywhere else? You said it was kind of simultaneous that line. Oh, so yeah. So, so to, sort of towards the end of my like, uh, work in film. I was, I, I mean, I had, I had the idea, the idea for Linus. It was like a loose idea originally. And what was um, that? What was that like? I just, so it, at that time, I mean, there was, there was kind of a lot of things happening. There was like, it was like sort of the end of the, the Bush administration. It was like the Gulf war it was Iraq. Um, it was like sort of the emergence of like climate science and like kind of what's what's really happening to our environment and then it was the recession you know so it was like all those kind of things and i just like you know i just felt like we can't personally i couldn't like kind of continue in the same capacity as i was like which a lot of it was like making commercials like trying to like generate desire for things that probably people didn't really need most of the time um and wanting to make something that I just like that was just tangible, uh, you know, like I'll, I like a, a bike exists. Yeah. You know, and um, I was I was getting kind of burnt out on just like putting all this energy into making a commercial and not even like seeing it because I didn't, you know, I didn't care. And um, I was I was more there for like the the process of the work and the people that I was working with and the actual result of the work. Um, so it was that, and then just like believing that, you know, so I don't, I, I never thought that like bicycles would, would replace cars in any capacity. Like, um, cars would always 
clearly be part of transportation, but I felt that there was a space for bicycles as cities became denser, and I, that has been the tendency over the last 20, 30 years that people like went to the suburbs and now they're moving back. You know, they're urbanizing and it's getting crap more and more dense in our cities. Um, and so with, within like a, a, a crowded city, like short trips, you know, under two miles are in many ways more practical and more pleasant to do by bike. And it's not about being an athlete or like a, a sort of um, anti-establishment like bike messenger. It was just like, this makes sense for short trips in an, in an urban setting, you know, where you can... And it's faster than walking. It's, it's faster than walking. It's more enjoyable than walking. You can carry more of a load. You can actually kind of do like kind of basic, you know, errands, whether it's like groceries or picking up a kid. Um, there's always a parking for you in within that sort of environment as, as crowded as like these cities are you're it's probably the same amount of time it's better for you like physically it's better for the environment um it's just like it just it just makes perfect sense for me and some of my favorite cities are cities that are sort of bicycle centric you know when you're going copenhagen copenhagen yeah. or, or amsterdam i love you know like there's sure. in, most like european cities were kind of more bikes than people. yeah because they, they I, I don't know i don't know how it necessarily happened maybe because their cities have always been really dense their roads are, are narrow and small and parking sucks and it's expensive to own a car in Europe. Um, and yeah, once like you get used to it, it's kind of a better way to live, right? Sure. That was my, but I just felt like there wasn't a bike that really like, like fit that model in the US. It was always like, like they were designing bikes for other like boardwalk recreation, you know, like, the, like, a, like a big beach cruiser. heavy beach cruiser. Um, or a mountain bike with or a mountain bike that's like very specific purpose or a road bike that's whether it's uncomfortable or it's just like too expensive to like you know use on a daily basis in a park or you know threat of like damage or theft or something like that so yeah I just wanted to make like a very simple functional elegant bike that could serve like as a model in, in the US to try and like build this idea of bikes as transportation so that, that was like really what Linus started as so where did the name come from? Um, the name, so a very close friend of mine's, uh, when I was starting the company, um, his, he had a kid and his name was, was Linus. Oh, cool. So, I mean, it, which was like partly that relationship, but also just like, I like that name. Um, it, and there's a lot of like, you know, when you're naming a company, it's, it's like, is there a trademark for it already? Right, sure. Does yeah. It, is like, it registered? Does it yeah. fit on the head badge? Is it, you know, those kind of things as well. well I so, also think of things like font. You know, like, will yeah, it look cool exactly. when you write it yeah. out? And, yeah. you know, and, and it's actually familiar with Charlie Brown. And then, you know, yeah, it, ha like you it has that like, whole connection. It has like, it has like this thing where it's like, it's, yeah, that familiarity. So it feels like, oh, has this been around for like a really long time? It also has like kind of like an old European kind of thing to it. Um, there's something in like just the word line, you know, it feels like, oh, like yeah. kind of trans like travel in a sense. Um, the more you kind of think about it, the more like it starts to feel right. I guess I don't know if whenever it you arrive on it, it becomes more dynamic. Yeah. yeah, even like I think like uh, Linus. I think its origin is like it's flax, mm. you know, which like flax is what they made linens from, and linens became sails. Yeah. So like transportation from like the very beginning of time, essentially, like was kind of in a way connected to its its name, and it's like from from from. Many little things like little tiny flaxies, you get like something that 
as big as like culture or transportation or yeah so i don't know there was just like a lot of like kind of connections that felt right and yeah can you touch on the design a little bit for those that don't know what the aesthetic is of these bikes yeah yeah um so the i guess the, the basis like the at least in when we started the company um the the frames they're based on sort of traditional kind of classic european city bikes italian and french and scandinavian bikes um if you've ever ridden those bikes they can they tend to be quite heavy though yes and they also have um a really long wheelbase and um kind of a a stretched out front end so the experience of riding them it's like it's very steady but it kind of drives like a tank right you know it's very stable um so we, we we like the sort of lines of that bike the sort of profiles but we just wanted to make them more agile and a bit kind of more fun to ride so that that was kind of the, the origin working with steel you know it kind of made the most sense for for city bikes um, mounts for, for carrying cargo, that kind of thing. More of an upright position, so there's less weight in your shoulders and neck and, and wrists. Um, just like a very sort of practical kind of bulletproof bike. So by making the handlebars swoop back, that inherently makes you more upright. Yeah, it brings you back, yeah. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of, that's, that's like the origin of the company. Those are, you know, frankly, like, I think what we're known for is like that, those really classic bikes. Um, we kind of expanded on that, um, over the last 12 years, we're still within this, this, this sort of realm of transportation, city bike. Um, so when did the company start? Was it 08? Uh, so a fit like launched 2007. That was like the first, like very first bikes that we brought over. Uh, I was really, I was really originally manufacturing in, in Vietnam. Um, and where they made now? And now we're making, we're manufacturing in Taiwan. Okay. Yeah. What, why, is it like a minimum order quantity deal it's, or is it? It's complex. There's a lot okay. of reasons. Yeah, I'll get into that in a second. Um, they, right, I guess right now is what I wanted to say is that we, so we have like this more heritage line and now we have like a, like a more, um, I guess, aggressive commuter line of bikes uh, for just traveling further distances, um, a lighter, more agile, more speeds. So uh, those are like the sort of with alloy frames. Um, we have electric bikes coming out in, in the sort of late summer as well. Cool. So, but everything that we do is, is in this world of sort of, a really functional transportation and what we believe to be like really sort of elegant lines, you know. So initially, how did you start the company? Was it just you? Did you have partners? Like, was it savings? Did you um, friends and family so, help you along? Or how so, so first the idea, right? And then like just looking and looking and it's like, does it exist? Is it like, yeah, just like, kind of figure out if it exists in the world and at least in the U.S. and I can't find it for myself and I want it. So let's take the next step. And I came from a totally different environment, you know, sure. uh, working in film and it's so like specific, like I work with cameras. That's what I did. You know, like it does, it's such a specific field of, I, I like the sort of like nostalgic kind of quality of these bikes and the sort of, and that's, I, in my thinking, I was like, okay, like Vietnam was also seemed like a place that was like, kind of trapped a little bit in like a communist kind of time 
time bubble, kind of like Cuba in a way. Oh, yeah. That was my, so I, I wanted to go there and I'd seen like just kind of in, in my research of the place that there was a lot of like, because it was a French, a French colony at one point. So a lot of like their traditional French bikes kind of became like the, the Vietnamese bike. Right. So that was my first kind of angle, you know, kind of going to a, a source like that. Um, and so I was just, I was on a surf trip in, um, in Indonesia and uh, I was with some friends and they were all like, you know, the, the trip was over. We went back to Singapore to like fly home. And I was like, I'm going to go to Vietnam. I had located a factory just like in my research and I just went to visit them and, you know, I, deal I, I found like a translator <laughs> and, uh, yeah, they, they had a conversation with me, you know, no one ever said no. And, um, so it was just like, and I didn't know, I didn't grasp the, like how everything that's involved in like manufacturing a product, a mechanical product, Boxing it, shipping it, bringing it in, building it, selling, you know, like, I was just like, this is something I want. Yeah. Right? I didn't, like, kind of think it out thoroughly. So, um, which I didn't get overwhelmed, you know, at that point. I was like, oh, I found a source. Great. You know, let's take the next step. And then, so, um, I had my, I had, like, a small savings. I brought over, like, 100 bikes. You know, I did, like, a, a bit of, like, just sort of very basic design work, working off some of their existing frames and kind of inspecting them a little differently. So they were doing everything soup to nuts, like the stems, the pedals, they, the a lot of wheels. It, a lot of it was, yeah. And I think, I mean, I think there were some local vendors that were, you know, and there were, they were, they were kind of, they were really beautiful. Yeah. Um, they didn't, like, there was a lot of inconsistencies. It wasn't like... It wasn't like modern manufacturing sort of standard ISO standard, and so there was like it was there was like a lot of difficulties. Communication was really difficult. They couldn't. There was no like banking system. I had to like oh, Western man. Union them like money. Um, they couldn't order parts from other countries, so I would have to like fly to Taiwan, pick up hubs, and like hand carry them over and get through customs with like eighty hubs, and like, it was just like it was silly. And I didn't know the difference because I had never really worked in manufacturing. I thought like. Okay, that's crazy that there's got to be an easier way. So, um, but so anyways, I brought them over. Um, I had like a, you know, a public storage with a hundred bikes in it and, and you I, were putting them together. And then that was like my first, like kind of like panic attack. I was like, Oh my God, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it was like, this is like a mountain, like, like a, like a filled like storage just unit, boxes. Like, like floor to ceiling, just solid boxes. Um, and then I didn't, you know, it was, it was like, then it was like a little bit of word of mouth. I managed to find a space in Venice, like a sort of a temporary space. A business was moving out and I just set up shop there and I had like some friends helping me to build and I was building in the back of like my, my apartment had like a little courtyard in the back, like in, in Venice, um, like a, a tiny space. And I probably sold through those bikes in three weekends. Wow. Yeah. So what were you doing to market it? Or, or like, were you just putting just them out on a sidewalk? Or? Yeah, I was putting them on the street, basically. That's sick. Like on, and it was on, it was on Abikini, so it was like the most kind of walked street in Venice and the sort of, I guess, the center of Venice. Oh, so that was the original space. It wasn't the original space, but it was on the same street, yeah. And, um, and you know, I had a lot of friends who worked in, like, um, Venice was a little smaller then. There was just, like, one bar 
predates that GQ article that said yeah, it was number way, it was, one it was, shopping street was, in the world. It was before GQ. It was before Jelena, which also like transformed the, the street. Um, there, there was one bar and a lot of my friends worked there. So like they were also kind of just connected to the community and um, it just kind of spread really quickly. Yeah. And, um, but also people were like, you know, it was like there, back then it was really like you can get a beach cruiser or you can just get like an old beater. And there was nothing that like was just really simple that, that looked really cool like this. Um, and it's not which I kinda just kinda, dollars. Yeah, you know? and it just kind of yeah. hit the mark of what I think what people kind of wanted. Um, How did you set up pricing? Because I think they were what right around four hundred bucks, right? Three fifty something. So like in the that, beginning, it was like, yeah, they they were they were really cheap. So know? was that just like a let me double my cost, or was it like standard retail type? Uh, markup? I didn't know what standard retail was. <laughs> I didn't know what like wholesale markups were. I didn't know what like the sort of industry standard was. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was just like let me let me double my cost. I didn't even know what all my costs were really because I was, probably wasn't factoring in a lot of things. Um, but it was at a price that that I guess that they moved. And they moved quickly, which was like. Do I need to increase my prices? <laughs> do I need to increase my prices? And also, yeah. Um, Primarily, you don't need to increase my prices, but also kind of like it, it got me through that first production and all the assembly of those hundred bikes and realizing like the limitations of my manufacturer. Um, and so that that eventually like that experience, it proved um, that there was like there, there was an interest, there was a demand in this this product, but I had to like sort out manufacturing and all like the, sort of the business of it. Yeah. So back to Asia again, found a new manufacturer, ended up moving production to China at that time um, with like a very reputable factory, been producing for the US for like 30 years. I had like a, an, uh, an agent who was there who, you know, who knew the industry as well, who helped me with sourcing and uh, yeah, so like it, it changed everything. Yep. Um, vastly improved the product. Um, and so then, these are all still steel chromoly bikes? Steel bikes, yeah. Yeah, and this is still, at this point, it was still like my, I was still working production on the side because, you know, you can kind of bounce back and forth. It was kind of getting to the point where it was, it was hard to do both, but I still, at least in the sort of development phase, I could and thankfully had like the film industry to go back to because it's the kind of work where you can fit, fit something in between. You can have like a side, a side gig. Sure. Um, so I got through the new manufacturer samples, and um, at that point... Um, my existing partner to this day um, came into the company. Uh, he's, he's a friend of mine from South Africa, and we also worked in production together. Cool. Um, and he, uh, so we became partners. We brought in like that next load of bikes, another 100 of bikes, and, and those also sold really well. We set up another shop. And it was from that point that um, it was like a first summer of, of the bikes being available at retail. They were at a higher price at this point. Um, they were more expensive cost-wise as well. Um, that a, someone came in from, someone who was just walking on the street from New York came into our shop uh, who was in the bike industry. He was, um, he'd worked like more retail his whole life, but he kind of knew, knew the business somewhat. You know, and he was a young guy. He was younger than us. And he was like, these are great. Like, this should be selling in New York. And he's like, let me be your rep, you know? And I was like, 
like we we were like happy with the success of our retail space that we were like that the bikes were moving um we weren't quite prepared for like okay let's move into wholesale right but like that was like encouraging and then we we're like well let's see like what what does that mean and then there was a trade show literally like two weeks later. Are you a watch collector, but having trouble finding something cool and unique? I mean, the last thing you really want is what everyone else has, right? Well, this is where my friend and former Standard Age podcast guest, Tim Jackson, comes in. He and his wife, Jana, own Passion Fine Jewelry in Solana Beach, California, where you'll find an incredible assortment of independent watches waiting for you in their shop and online. And if you're getting engaged, have an anniversary coming up, or simply have another reason to buy jewelry, they have you covered. Passion Fine Jewelry also employs a goldsmith on staff for any custom desires, so you're able to go that route if you so choose. Visit Passion Fine Jewelry when you find yourself in Southern California, but they're also open 24 hours a day at passionfinejewelry.com. You can also find a wealth of information through Tim's blog, independentintime.com, where he covers anything independent watchmaking related, uh, among a plethora of other information. So check that out as well. I've really enjoyed creating these podcasts on behalf of Standard H and sharing each of these personal stories with all of you. We each have goals and it's the entrepreneurial spirit that inspired me to start the company. You can further support the brand and the podcast by visiting standard-h.com to pick up your choice of merchandise. And as always, thank you for listening. Lastly, if you have a moment, please rate and review the show. It makes a tremendous difference in keeping these things going. And now back to my conversation with Adam. Like what the, show did you go to? That was Interbike. Interbike, yeah. So Interbike, which doesn't even exist anymore. Yeah. You know, the industry is... Vegas? Really, yeah. 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 So um, we managed to get like a booth at Interbike. Uh, it was also... So... I don't know if you've done much trade shows and I don't know how trade shows work in, in other industries as well, but like in, in the bike industry at that time, they had like sort of the main room, which was like all the established brands. And then they had like another room, which was like the new brands, you know, and things got kind of wacky in the new room. Like that's where you had like weird, like elliptical bikes that you kind of like walk right on water or like anything like new and different and kind of like, you know, so it, it can be like Siberia, you know, like to, to end up in that room. Um, and fortunately we managed to get a, and we didn't know, we just kind of by luck got a, a booth, like actually in a really kind of good spot, like on a, on one of the avenues in the main room next to like some really big brands. And a lot of people saw our product and we picked up, we picked up a lot of business cards, right? There was like a lot of like interest. We didn't closing a deal at a trade show was like another thing, but we actually, you know, we, we got like, some some hot leads and in in our naivety in the beginning we were like you know it's a 20 bike minimum like we just like don't know where we came up with that number it sounded good number. yeah yeah everyone like ran away from that number you know um so we you know we eventually compromised on our on our minimum and uh we opened what is it. that minimum now the industry is has changed a lot you know so a lot a, a lot of the as as a wholesaler it's it's more on you to hold inventory than it was in the past before like the dealer would like stock inventory quite deeply. They would be their own warehousing. But now as a, as a wholesaler, they're like, we only want a special order. Or we don't want to carry a lot of debt. They don't want to carry a lot of debt. Um, so in, in that kind of model, it's, 
they maybe they the sale happens at the store, but they're calling it in. And you ship them a bike, they make the sale. So it's a little different. We don't uh, the minimums are are much less than they used to be for us. Sure. Um, but anyway, so from from that from that trade show, uh, you know, we we picked up an account in New York. We picked up an account, I think, in Portland. Um, I think there was one in San Francisco and that was it, but it was a start, you know? Yeah. Well, and those are like hot corners, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, those are, that's where, that's where we sell. Those are like, we're, we're like kind of an urban product. Uh, we still had our own warehousing kind of at that point, which was like, was like a warehouse, like in South Central that was like shared with like, um, a, um, food truck. Oh, kind of no like um, like a food truck supplier. So they had like all like the you know like all, like you know like sitting in the ice. So, like all so like, the bikes were refrigerated. <laughs> so we built, we made a cha- we made a chain link fence like within the space, and that's where we had and we had like a pickup truck and we'd run you know we'd run down there grab some bikes build them and it was like it was like this kind of very right. like manual like really the worst planning. Um, at that trade show, uh, we met someone in 3PL, and that also transformed us, you know, like sure. moving like all that sort of operational stuff to a fulfillment service like that. Like, now, is that now like in Ontario or somewhere? Oh, uh, right now, yeah, we're, we have one in California and one in New Jersey. Oh, and that cool. was also really transformative, like having the two warehouses, because we also, a lot of our businesses on the East Coast, you have to like be able to offer shipping that you know, doesn't is reasonable. The, yeah. The, the cost of shipping a bike across country is, is one thing. And also just time. Yeah. They want to, you know, it's like a restaurant, right? Yeah. They yeah. want product by the weekend or something. The ingredients you know? need to be fresh. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So that was, that was a, that was a huge, huge for us. I don't, we definitely couldn't have managed that with our own, our own where else at that yeah. time. A quick question on the design. I meant to ask you earlier, yeah. were the parts that you were choosing in day one, were those already manufactured? Were you manipulating parts in any way? Or like, I like that bar, but I want it bent more. Or like, that yeah. stem needs to have a different degree angle. Or handlebars, definitely. That that's like that was a, a key one. That was a lot of fighting for to like kind of get the curve just so you know because it's. Um, so were you doing like prototyping and stuff like that too? Like, was that incurred costs or? Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was there was some basic tooling sure. for that. Um, tire tread there was tooling things like that oh, um, interesting and also just like sometimes it's taking like what exists from like a vendor's catalog and saying like i don't like i want this but i want that with it and they'll modify it for you or something like that and whether they bear the cost or you bear the cost like it's you know, worked out yeah, yeah it's worked out we're also fortunate there's a lot of like our, our we, we try and use parts throughout our our whole production so we can kind of like share the minimums um, we've established like kind of our, I guess our sort of signature, like, like brown leather that like we can use year to year and it, you know, so we're not the, the, each, each change you make, you know, is, is, is difficult and costly in, in manufacturing, especially if, like low volumes. Cause we're, you know, we're, we're still kind of a niche, yeah. niche company. We don't, um, we, we sell to a very, so I guess specific customer still. So you have... I guess your first one was the Roadster Classic, I guess? Uh, yeah, we had the Ro- Roadster Classic. We, we started with like the Roadster, the Dutchie, and the Mixed E. Okay, so, so three models to yeah. start. And what were the differences between those? Uh, they're frame design. Okay. You know, like you're, the, the Dutchies are sort of like very classic, upright, like step-through bike. 
uh, roasters, like your also classic diamond frame, you know, with the top top tube. Um, the Mixie is, this, I guess, the bike that's sort of in between those two. That it's it's still considered a step through, which traditionally is for women. But it's it's just more. Um, it's a kind of a sportier riding position than than the Dutchie, which is very upright. Right. Cool. And then like around that, like we be sort of making bags and racks and things like that to kind of add to the utility of the bike and as well as like to personalize it sure. um you know generally in in the world of bikes especially at that time there was like everything was just like it was like nylon and like plastic buckles and like you know we just wanted like i guess a more heritage experience you know it was like canvas and leather and you know, so that's well. I like that you went with metal pedals and not plastic yeah. black ones. Yeah. That like back. Well, I mean, even since the '80s, I mean, black plastic pedals with reflectors yeah. on them have existed. But like with like, yeah. the spindle going. Definitely. Through. Yeah. I mean, we try and reduce as much plastic on on the bike as possible. You know, just just for longevity. Now, with distribution early days, like you said, you were just rolling the bikes out on the sidewalk and then you very, very beginning. Yeah. And then the trade show happened. Then you got some wholesale accounts. Yeah. What is distribution looking like today? Um, is it more of a wholesale business or is it mostly mostly a wholesale business? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so your bikes, you kind of have to have like a bit of everything, you know, I guess it's what they call omni channel. Ideally like a mechanic experienced mechanic, in a bike shop who's building a bike is the best way to buy a bike, I believe. Um, that we try to like design our program around that to kind of direct sales to, to our wholesale accounts. You know, we, our website does a lot of the marketing, of course, and we do as much as we can to like, you know, build the brand, but then sort of fulfillment at the wholesale experience. They can purchase through our website, but again, still like mostly fulfillment at the at the wholesale experience. Um, we sell internationally as well, and that's kind of works through distributors. We sell in um, right now we're in Singapore, um, New Zealand, um, Canada, Europe, and that's done through yeah. a distribution company, or is that sales that you guys have generated? There. In, yeah, so Europe, we were doing our, our own. I think we're going to transition out of that to, to more of a distributor model. You know, it really, like, like w- what we learned with is each Europe's interesting because it's, like, it's effectively the EU, like, the one single economic community. But in reality, especially for, like, a, like a product like a bicycle, they're all very different markets with different demands and different tastes and even different like safety requirements you know so oh true yeah, yeah. so you so we're, we're going to split it up now and, and work individual you know with individual individual countries cool how has covid affected you guys or has it um, positive negative i both you know both so like on i guess on the on the negative side um it it severely impacted manufacturing uh we we work on a on a very sort of seasonal demand uh winter is is pretty quiet even christmas you know it's like people aren't really thinking bikes um but like around you know march april our website traffic kind of hockey sticks yeah um but at that same time so we want to have you know bikes landed in our warehouse you know, uh, early spring 
and that's that's kind of when COVID broke out, right? So yeah. that was like it was like Chinese New Year, which is in January. Then that got then COVID broke out, and everyone who left the factories for Chinese New Year stayed away because they didn't want them to come back because of COVID. Right. So there was like this really long delay between you know you see, take I think they take two weeks off for for New Year's and then they added a month on for for COVID. So it just it just pushed everything out. Um, so we're still getting through that. Um, we lucky to, we were lucky to get some inventory in, um, and then then we're you know then then sort of COVID happened and at first it was like no one knew really what to expect. A lot of our stores kind of didn't want to be open that we sell to, um, and then demand has just been so high. I mean, it's been kind of crazy that um, a lot of mo most accounts that we sell to are, are open if they can be. Um, we can't seem to hold inventory. Like as soon as as soon as we have inventory, it's it's selling kind of before it's even available to the general public. It sells from our warehouse to our wholesalers. Wow! Before we can make it like live on our website, kind of thing. Um, it's yeah, like the the de the demand I think is is kind of crazy and really encouraging, you know, uh, it's, it's such a unique experience that it's, it's hard to plan around, you know, like you, as a business, we're trying to ask, you know, like how long can this reliably last? Is this, has there, has there been a fundamental change in how people are as a society that they will ride more and do less of other things? I don't know. Sure. You know, yeah. so that, those are the questions we're trying to ask ourselves because we out, it's um, our our business works on really long projections. You know, if we're if we're um, if we want to manufacture a bike, it's you know it's probably five six months. You know, from from when we place that purchase order. So, you know, you're trying to decide what demand is going to be like. You know, right. And then you're using like out. yeah. I was going to ask you later, but we could talk about it now. Just like the metrics for defining success for you guys? Like, is it yeah. just based on LY, you know, like you're just trying to beat last year's numbers or is it a, well, let's really try to innovate and, you know, yeah. like how do you guys measure your success each year? Um, I mean, it's definitely like, you know, sales, sales are clearly a big part of it, of course. Sure. Um, I mean, I think what we've also, he's also after like 12 years, it's like, it's also, how can, how can I build a life around this? You know, what's like a life that I want to live now that we have families as well. Um, so it's, it's a balance. It's a balance of like, of course we want to grow, but we also like to what end? Right. You know, that's like, yeah, exactly. like I, you find a place where it's like, okay, I feel I feel I feel safe as I biz, as a business. I feel safe financially. I and I maybe I can create more room to like be with my family and my friends. And you know I don't I don't have to if I don't. It, what yeah? What is the, what is the cost of more growth? If it, if it means like less of that, and like that's that's always a question. Like to to weigh out like are we going to continue to like grow and add more products and spend more time at the factories and you know meeting with like distributors. You know, it's just a question. There's, we 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 want to grow, of course, and we we're ambitious, but 
I'm starting to realize more and more like, yeah, what, what's the, the, the true benefit or cost to that? Yeah. And it's not, and sometimes like growing or adding new product lines in your revenue streams isn't necessarily like the answer. Right. Did you have goals set early on, like at the beginning? Yeah. Yeah. We, we, I mean, we never like, it's never been like five years exit strategy kind of, right. you know, like. It didn't we, strike we thought, me as that, which yeah, is why we were, I asked we, the question. We were, think, we were thinking like, like, like build a brand, like, you know, here's a place my kids can work one day, like that, that, that kind of thing. That's awesome. Um, and, you know, so, and within, within the, within like the, the brand and the product, there's there's small refinements. You know, electric is interesting because there's like kind of a lot we can do with that. Um, accessories are interesting. The bikes are constantly getting tweaked, but it's no like kind of like sweeping change. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think there's there's still creative opportunities. You know, like I still feel challenged by creatively, uh, which is, which is good. I think when that stops, then it's like right, yeah, you know, then you kind of. On, on remote control a little bit, but um, hopefully, and, hopefully the kids old enough to work here that by then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what um, you guys have always offered really cool colors. Yeah, um, both sort of in matte appeal as or, or um, a matte finish as well as um, the gloss. I guess do you mm -hmm. call it? Yeah, matte and gloss. What um, what sort of defines the colorway or like do you guys follow like a color story the way a fashion brand does or where do you guys I mean, we, get that we, inspiration? We look at, we look at trend. Um, you know, I think in the beginning, which I, I think became our, kind of our most popular colors, were like, was looking at a, like a lot of vintage Mercedes and, and Porsche colors. Oh, is that where they came from? Yeah. Yeah. I have the Rosewood, I think it's called. Yeah. One of the, like, it's like yeah, I th I think brown and light, black in certain lights, and then it looks red in certain lights. Yeah, it's it has like that kind of a burgundy. Fleck. Yeah, yeah. It. Yeah. It's a really interesting beautiful color yeah yeah so where did that come from um i don't know specifically <laughs> like selfishly that, that one yeah i mean I, th I think those were like definitely like it was like those catalogs were like if, if it wasn't like specifically like a color like i like that color on that car i want that green on this bike it was like just like the overall experience of it um in the beginning it was like all it was all glosses we've got yeah we've kind of we've gone to some more metallics now and and mattes um, but you know, generally it's like, yeah, it's just trying to, I think a lot of our colors have like just a bit of grays in it, you know, like they're kind of, you kind of make them a, a little less, um, primary, you know, so they're not like kind of cartoony colors or they're kind of a, I like all the muted colors yeah. myself. Were you always a Mercedes Porsche guy? Like, were you always a car guy? Um, well, I'm. I, I, I've never, I've never like, I've never owned like, you know, a, a, a beautiful car, like in that sense. Um, in, in the world of cars, yes, that's, that's where it would be. The taste. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. What, uh, so I was emailing back and forth with your wife, Bree, mm -hmm. and she said surfing has obviously been a huge part of your life. Yeah. Um, so what is, what is like, how often do you surf these days? Uh, I mean, last I have a two-year-old now, um, <laughs> but I mean, I'll, I'll still surf like a couple times a week, yeah. you know, um, what's your spot? Venice. Okay. Yeah. You go to the pier or you jetties? I usually or? at the pier. Yeah. Um, it's close. I can ride my bike, 
you know that that's kind of like half of it you know just like not not fussing too much um i don't know if i if i don't do it then like i'm just like i'm kind of shitty like i'm kind of like yeah i know the feeling you know like i i I don't know how else to explain it but like if i if i'm not doing it then like sort of like just like mentally like my like everything that normally would set me off like sets me off a lot easier in life whether it's like family or work or whatever it is you know but if i if i manage to get like myself in the water part of it's exercise but part of it's just like just the space yeah it's an outlet and it's a sensation i guess you know like of actual surfing um i'm a much i'm a much i think i'm a much better person if i do it you know (laughs) so what kind of boards are you surfing um i surf a shortboard sure um thruster yeah, yeah. Um, so I this uh, actually a South African shaper uh, in the South Bay. His name is uh, Ian Wright. Okay, shapes my boards. Cool. Yeah. So what took you from Abbot Kenny to this space here on Lincoln? Was it literally just space? Just need a bigger uh, space? Yeah, it was. We we definitely needed space. That was a tiny, tiny location. I think that was like there was like an upstairs and a downstairs, and I think it was like four hundred square feet. Right. Right. So. We had 200 square feet for our office and 200 square feet for like showroom to blow. So we had a courtyard, so we managed to get some more use, more use of the space. Um, so it was, it was that. Um, Abikini changed dramatically in, in the time that we started our company. Um, it's become like more of like a traditional commercial street, you know, like, like many streets, you know, like they all start to kind of, look somewhat similar where it's like the same retailers, the same kind of formula for a street. Right. Do you know, I don't know if you, I'm sure you have that experience. In for San Diego retail. Too. Yeah. It's like yeah. you see like the same brands just lined up. If one of them starts there, it becomes a mall. Then they all like basically. follow each other. Yeah. And then, yeah. So it's kind of become a, like a bit of a mall experience. So there, there's that, like it just like, it doesn't feel like as part of like the community street that it once was. Cause it used to be really like, I mean, people will come to visit Abikini, but it was also like the street for, for Venice, like that was like yeah, you go get your bagel and then, yeah, you yeah. saw like you saw everyone you knew on that on that street, and um, so it was like yeah, it was it was a real community. Uh, it's 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 less of that now. I mean, there's still you know it's, it's still one of the primary streets, of course, but it's um, it's more of a tourist destination today. So we never sold bikes to tourists. Like like tourists don't right you yeah you're not buying a bike you're not, on you're vacation not a and buy yeah. a bike. Yeah, yeah exactly so so that that's never really been our market um so yeah we we ended up on lincoln and lincoln a lot of like i think of what maybe was on originally like on abikini has has come to lincoln it's like one of the, the streets that are that's been changing over time you know sure. what um i know you've worked on a couple different partnerships over the years didn't you do a partnership with like Almond down in we yeah that was Orange one of County. our first yeah in yeah New, in Newport. What are some of the partnerships that you're doing these days, or are there any? Um, yeah, we have. So, so we have like so we have like some like hotels that we that we work. We're doing something with the Beverly Hills Hotel actually, and and like there's some bigger partners like that. Like so like with, with Beverly Hills, like we're doing like they're they're kind of iconic like banana leaf like wall print like over a bike it's really beautiful um we uh we're actually doing something with claire v who's like um a handbag designer in los angeles and she does really really beautiful stuff she has like a bunch of stores as well so we're making a bike with her for this for this summer um we've 
who else have we oh we work with jenny kane she's also like another kind of like big la retailer um that that's kind of we we, we tend to do like a lot with um with like women's brands you know i think like that's kind of i think one of the things in our our position in the in, in the bike world so if you, if you look like traditional bike companies they sell you know roughly like 20 percent of their businesses to women um we're like 55 percent to women so oh, no way yeah yeah so um it's that's always like kind of been a like kind of a big necessary highway one yeah um yeah it's, it's a big part of who we are so like there's a lot of our kind of relationships are there kind of through like women's brands that's cool that's awesome so electric bikes is next anything else what's what else is next um, for linus uh we have some other like little things going on so we have electric bikes which we're really excited about um it's you know it's, it's taken a long time to like kind of get to this point it's um we just didn't want to like leap into it you know like there's like it's like, there's for one there's like just kind of changing technologies um we wanted to like when we launched our electric bike, we just wanted it to be right. So we've definitely like taken our time to develop it um, and go through a lot of prototypes and find the right like manufacturer who thinks up to it. And um, so are you still using the same manufacturer? No, no, we went somewhere else for that. Okay, so where are the bikes made now? Uh, China. Oh, for, in China. Okay. Sorry for for the electric. Yeah. Ta- oh, I Taiwan see. for our conventional bikes. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Um, and they're they're a great factory who's like. Who, yeah. There's a lot of like great work in, in that space. Um, yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that like most of the carbon bike frames are built in the same factory. Yeah. And I think Giant might own them. I'm not sure. But like if you're buying a carbon frame bike, I mean, unless you're getting like an Italian bike. Yeah. That, that frame, yeah. whether it be Trek, Cannondale, whoever. Yeah, China. China's, don't quote me on these brands yeah. specifically, but... Chances are very good that the yeah. same factory is producing your yeah, frame. Yeah, China, China's really good at carbon. Yeah, uh, I mean it's just like yeah, it's like it's like Foxconn in that sense. You know, it's like you're, they're making phones for everyone. You know, they're just they're good at manufacturing. Sure. Yeah. They're, yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so that that bike's coming out uh, as I said, uh, kind of end of summer. Cool. Which is disappointing for us because you know because of COVID, we were we were expecting it to launch. Uh, in June, in fact, but there's just it's just pushed back. Um, other than that, we have some kind of interesting kids stuff. We're we, we're kind of a line of helmets coming out for kids. One of the things, like, I, I mean, part of it's like I guess being a parent as well. But well, I was gonna know, say, yeah, yeah, like in, in the kids world, like a lot of like the helmets are like really cartoony, like, and so I don't know. Just felt like okay, we could make it we, better yeah we could this is just something that's like just not like covered like in daisies for girls and i don't know rocket ships for boys you know it's like it's just we, i don't know we just feel like there's kind of more that we could do with like kind of graphics and colors that that's not being done that's i think a little cooler so that's um that'll be coming out also kind of towards the end of summer and and then there's always there's always like stuff to like you know what's, what's kind of nice about a, a bike or at least our bikes is like it's like there's a, the bike itself, of course, it's core, but then, like, what can be added to it? Like, so right. we're always, like, making bags and racks and kind of details that add to the utility and, and personality of the bike. Sure. Yeah, that's awesome. 
What are you listening to these days? You still in the NWA or what? No, I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I've moved on from NWA. Um, I, we listen to so much music, but it's kind of like the... You know what? Honestly, like I feel like Spotify does such a good job of supplying me like new music. Hundred percent. Become kind of lazy about my exploration, but I feel like I haven't like suffered for it because like every like week, like a Discover Weekly comes out, and there's like there's not like um, it's not a, it's not like vastly new every week, but there I'm just amazed at like how many. How, like how how many new songs from like from bands that I've never heard of, old or new, that that it'll feed me that are like so exactly t- my taste in music. Right. Like what they're doing, they're doing it really well. Yeah. So it's just supplied my music needs pretty much entirely. Sometimes I'll listen to like BBC Radio Six has like really interesting music or uh, Radio Nova, the, the French radio station. Um, but yeah, Spotify is amazing. Well, listen, man, I really appreciate you taking the time. Cool, thank you. I'd like to thank Adam one more time for hosting me in the Linus showroom. Um, it was great to sit down and chat, finally meet each other face to face, and of course, at a safe social distance. Uh, the microphone cables are much more than six feet long, so all went well that day um really appreciate you taking the time as always thanks to clear audio for the noise canceling headphones as well as to jensen reed and super beautiful for the theme track stay tuned in another couple weeks time when i'll be back with yet another episode of the standard age podcast thanks so much for listening bye everyone